All right. We'll begin our final session. In this session, I want to explore, we sort of talked about justification in Holy Communion. This one, I want to talk about its relationship as a, a filter and a grid through the way that we can experience the morning prayer liturgy. And I want to work our way into this by offering us some historical observations of how we got this thing in our prayer books called morning prayer uh, at the beginning. So the first thing I want to point out is for centuries prior to the Reformation, Christians have had a long tradition and history of praying to God daily in fixed forms with fixed prayers, and those were called the daily offices. Um, and by the time of the late medieval era, so the time that the Reformation is happening in 16th century and the first English prayer books are being formed, those offices had blossomed into a kind of daily set of rituals. And the daily office included what you'll notice as eight times a day that you will... Hang on a second. Oh, that's so weird. Hold up. I'm hearing a recording of a lecture I did when I used this slide like three years ago. That's weird. <clears throat> anyway, by the time of the late medieval era, uh, there, were eight, there were eight times a day when, um, when the... Gosh. When the people of God would connect with God through various prayers. When I say the people of God, I actually don't mean every average Christian like you and me. I, meant, uh, I mean the monks and the priests who would have the time of day who weren't working to be able to approach God at eight different times a day. Matins, lauds, prime, ter, sex, nun, vespers, and compline. And they would have set prayers to be able to pray. One of the things that um, was a kind of Reformation instinct was that uh, there was a, a desire for some of these things that seemed to be specially preserved for a unique class of better Christian than the rest, to be given back to everybody. And given that the majority of people don't have all day to spend in private devotion to God, but actually have these things called jobs, or these things called life that they have to do, like rearing children or farming or being a blacksmith or whatever, uh, whatever have you, what Cranmer wanted to do and other reformers wanted to do was democratize piety in a way, to not create this kind of elite super way of being a Christian that was inaccessible to the average person. Because one of the things that was really sort of plaguing the average Christian was, am I all right with God? And what the church sort of provided as a mode of being all right with God is, hey, you've got this group of people over there in those monasteries praying for you and doing all the righteousness for you. So your job is to kind of pay your taxes, your church taxes, to keep them going so that they can do this for you. So it's a kind of interesting interplay between works righteousness and economics that kept the church going. And the gospel filter instinct of justification said, we want to do something that, number one, takes prayer to God 
out of the realm of classes of better Christians that God loves more and into the realm of the nature of simply coming before God as a Christian on a daily basis. So what we found was that Cranmer um, actually took the offices and boiled them down to two. The idea, which is what I was describing last night, was that someone who has, is a working person could come before and after work and still engage in the Word and engage in prayer in your parish church, because most of this still would be public. But eventually over the course of time, as Cranmer boiled it down to morning and evening prayer and it seeped in, and as books started being produced, because also if you're knowing your, your historical timeline, this is really the first time that mass printing of books becomes a thing, and people other than the elite and wealthy could actually conceive of having a book in their home. Over the centuries, people had prayer books to pray from at home. And so in addition to the option of always going to church before and after work to enjoy and pray morning and evening prayer with your parish, you could also be doing this at home, which is a lot of the Anglican piety of now, or at least what's urged for now is that morning and evening prayer is something that one can pray, even though it's a corporate liturgy, in the privacy of your own home or as you're going about uh, your life. Gosh, goodness gracious. So um, the idea of this was not only just to simplify it for the sake of making it accessible to people, I think there was a theological claim here too. And the theological claim was this. You don't need to spend your whole day praying to God for God to love you. (laughs) It was in a sense, justification by faith alone said, your vocation out there in the world is also glorifying to God. You don't need to be, in a sense, having your whole day filled with pharisaical, long-winded prayers. It is enough just to begin and end your day listening to the Word and praying to God. So even the idea of simplifying the daily offices to just morning and evening prayer. In the original prayer books, for instance, there was no noonday prayer. It had really whittled down to just morning and evening prayer. Even in that move, there's a kind of justification filtering instinct going on to say... A good Christian doesn't equal someone who's just constantly praying all the, all the time. A good Christian is also someone who, in the word, is simply living in the world in love of neighbor and love of God and glorifying them in that. And I do think that that's a statement of what's going on in the daily office and worth sort of pointing out. The other thing that I just generally want to say about morning and evening prayer, yes, I've indicated that it's for private use and public use. It was intended for daily prayer. Now I'd like to simply look at it structurally. Um, So turn with me a little bit to what Cranmer did with morning prayer. We're going to take a look at this section here. So how how Cranmer took the whole liturgy of from matins to about terse and put it into morning prayer as a way of illustrating some of this filtering work that he was doing. So Look with me on your handout, page number four. In this particular Sarum breviary, you see Matins, Laud, and Prime. You see the liturgy there next to it, and it's got a lot of stuff going on. But what I want you to pay attention to in particular is where confession and absolution fall throughout your day. So again, before daybreak, you're going to pray Matins if you're a good medieval monk. 
Um, and then at Lodz, right at daybreak, a few hours later, you're coming back. And then <laughs> yet a few hours later, just at 6 a.m., you're already into your third set of prayers. So this is morning prayer for you. And notice where confession and absolution fall towards the end. So it's an interesting move that when Cranmer shrunk down these liturgies, he moved confession and absolution to the beginning of the liturgy of morning prayer. Now, why might he want to do that? What is the kind of statement going on there? In the left, you have a theology of sin that is more external in nature. And here's what I mean. Sin is something that you commit and that you do. It is not a, a disposition of the heart or something that flows from the heart. On the right side, when you have Cranmer giving us confession and absolution, basically upon waking up, he's making a theological claim. And the theological claim is this. Even before you have a chance to commit an act of sin, you have something to confess because sin flows from the heart. And this goes into a Reformation debate on the heart and on what's called concupiscence, which is, is my... Is it not only that the sinful acts that I do are those condemnable by God, but is it also what's in here that gives birth to those acts? Is that also something that, in a sense, must be confessed as well? I'm articulating this in a bit of a broad brush and a bit too simplistically, but in general, Roman Catholic theology would say that's not something to be confessed that's called the, the tinder that ignites the fire that is the sin. But we don't confess the tinder. We confess the fire. And you see that present here in sort of the way the day develops in, in the Sarum Breviary from Matins to Lauds to Prime. Is you go through several hours of living not really confessing your sin. Why? Because you sort of have to wait in the day for you to have sinned. And then you sin and then you say, God, I'm sorry. And then you're sort of... Uh, confessed up and absolved, as it were. And the, the Reformation instinct, based on reading the scriptures, was that when we woke up, first thing we need to do is say, Lord, have mercy on me, I need you. Which is why it's front-ended in the morning prayer liturgy. And why it tends to be front-ended in a lot of liturgies that the Reformers will put their hands on. Because there's a statement of, <clears throat> do we sin because we're sinners? Or are we sinners because we sin? And in the Reformation, they would say, we sin because we're sinners. In other words, just as salvation is inside out, it, it's precisely because our problem is an inside out problem. We bear bad fruit because the tree is rotten to the core and needs the work and transformation of God. And so that's one of the reasons why um, we have confession and absolution right on the front end, which should be hopefully a, a comfort to you that you have an opportunity to give that. So now I want to kind of walk through morning prayer and hopefully give us a lot of time for questions. So this is just a PDF of the 2019. And what I would encourage you with is that you all can use this in your daily life or maybe once a week or maybe midweek say, I want to I tackle this morning prayer thing a little bit. And pray this alone or gather in a small group or gather with your church in a location and maybe offer this up to the Lord if this isn't a daily or weekly habit. Mostly because when morning prayer and Holy Communion liturgies work in tandem in the rhythms of your life, 
they have a way of re-emphasizing and wearing these grooves of repentance and making you more of a Christian as a result of these patterns. First thing I want you all to, to look at is in morning prayer, God gets the first word. The first word out of the gate is not something we say, but is the word of God to us in one of the following sentences. But the next thing I want to point out is this right here. I don't know if I'm going to be able to highlight it. Nope, I'm not. We hear it a lot, and maybe we're most familiar with hearing the phrase, dearly beloved, in the wedding liturgy, right? Dearly beloved, we have gathered in this place to observe the union of this man and this woman, or however it's put, you know. The whole idea of addressing a congregation as dearly beloved was really something that came to the fore during the Reformation. I think it's really important. Here's why. Here's what I've noticed from folks in my traditions and and your traditions when it comes to traditions that heavily emphasize confessing sin, is you start to get in this pattern of thinking that sort of until the moment I confess my sin and hear absolution, God hates me. And that part of my confession is in a sense groveling and kind of showing him how sincere I am about how much this stuff. And, and then it goes into distorted views of what the cross is. And I find in my own church planting ministry, one of the sort of missionary calls I have are to people who are in some form of category of deconstruction, if you've ever heard that term. People who are holding the, the church at, at arm's length because of questions they have as a result of faith or the way they've seen the church interact in culture or reliability of the scriptures or abuse in the church and things like that. And one of the interesting testimonies of um, having felt really hurt by the church from churches like mine in the Protestant and Reformed tradition is a way of understanding sin and the cross like this. God hated me. The Father hated me. And so he beat up his son so that he could love me on the cross. And after the father punished the son on my behalf, the father's no longer mad at me and now he's happy with me. And that's really a distortion of the truth and leads to some really nasty consequences of one's understanding of, of, of how one stands before God on a daily basis. I mean, if you could sit with me in some of the conversations I had over coffee or meal and process the trauma of these folks who have lived under that theological grid of the way that they related to God. Yeah, I, you know, I would say, man, you're in need of a reformation. And one of the reformations you need to know is that at every moment in your life and at every moment in the liturgy, which is why it begins the liturgy this way, you are dearly beloved by the Father. That the process you're going through of open heart surgery isn't because God hates you and he has to remake you so that he can love you again. This operation is love from first to last. It is because God God loves you that he is unwilling to let you see your own destruction when left to yourself. And so it's really important, especially when we're going to go through something hard like confessing our sin or letting the law expose us, or being honest about that, to know that I am exposed in a safe place. Is this a safe place for me to be honest? And this address as dearly beloved is meant to front end the safety of what's about to happen with this open heart surgery. I am a benevolent surgeon. 
I do this for your good. This heart transplant is not because I hate you and want to do harm to you. It's because I love you and want to see you have life and life abundantly. And so sometimes when I have led this liturgy publicly or even in our own service, I will just address the people and even pause there and say, Dearly beloved, and I just want you to know, God loves you. And the journey that we're about to take in worship is one that's for your good. Some things in here are going to be difficult and hard, but know that God has your good and he's not abandoning you and he will see you through to the end. That's what's being communicated in the whole Dearly Beloved. And then what we really have in this opening bit, which is new language for what Cranmer originally wrote in Daily Prayer, is this beautiful outlining of what daily worship and what a theology of worship is. The scriptures, so even here we're being taught that worship is based on the word and is nothing short of the word of God coming to us, living and active, There it is again. The scriptures teach us to acknowledge our many sins and offenses, not concealing them, or in the old language, as I said before, that we should neither dissemble nor cloak them. I love that language. We should neither try to try to hide or or uh, duck out of the clarity of, of our sins and our state, not concealing them from our heavenly Father, but confessing them with humble and obedient hearts. For the purpose that we may obtain forgiveness by his infinite goodness and mercy. So there's another way of saying our God whose property is always to have mercy. We ought at all times humbly to acknowledge our sins before almighty God. But especially when we come together and in case you thought he wasn't charismatic, he is. He actually believes that we come to encounter the presence of God in worship. And even as we engage liturgy, let's never forget we are, this liturgy is a means to have dialogue and encounter and relationship with the living God. We're not playing here. We're not playing church with the liturgy. The liturgy is us dialoguing and talking with and encountering the power and presence of God. But especially when we come in his presence, we should do this kind of thing called confession. And here he's really pulling from what he sees going on in Isaiah 6, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And he was seated on the throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. I saw the Lord. The heavens were open to me. I encountered the presence and power of the living God. And as that train and temple were opened up, I, I heard a song, the Sanctus, the heavenly song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when Isaiah the prophet encountered the raw, powerful holiness of the living God, what was his next instinct? What did he do Almost in immediate reaction without any thoughts. He was not playing church or relationship. This was what one does when one encounters the power and presence of the living God in all his glory. What does he do? He immediately falls to his knees and confesses his sin. He says, woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So you see that kind of progression there. As soon as we enter into the presence of God, as is said here, especially when we come together, we come together to confess and not hide. 
We come to be the most honest we've ever been. You know, one could say that our lives outside of worship tend to be various misadventures in hiding our true selves. You know, Monday through Saturday is one great escapade in, in hiding and not being our true selves. And the admonition here is in the presence of Almighty God, who's blazing light, think Gloria here, stepping out of that dark room, and all the light is shining and all the, the dark recesses of our heart, that Almighty God is here to kind of expose it all because he loves you, right? And so here we have that kind of exposure being, being heralded at the beginning of a worship service, but especially when we come together in his presence. And here is, we might say, three the three principal purposes of what good worship together does. To give thanks for the great benefits that we have received at his hands. So when we gather to worship, we're coming to simply say, man, this whole week, the Lord has given things to me. I have been blessed by his, his abundance and his gifts. And there's so many things. I need, to, I need to count the many blessings that the Lord has given me. So when we gather, we're definitely gathering eucharistically in the sense of to give thanks. We're gathering to give thanks for the great benefits that we've received at his hands. Another purpose of worship is to declare his most worthy praise. Simply, we gather, and when we gather in his presence, one thing that humans should do is praise him because he's bigger than us. Praise him because he's our creator. Praise him because he's our savior. And the third purpose, to hear his holy word. And it, it, with that, a fourth purpose, actually, to ask Upon all those other things, to give thanks to him, to praise him, to receive and hear his holy word, and then kind of in response to that, to ask for ourselves and on behalf of others those things which are necessary for our life and our salvation. So if sometimes you're kind of a little bit unmoored, even if you come to a Sunday morning worship service, I might encourage you to turn to this page in morning prayer and read this to kind of center you about, this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to give thanks. I'm here to declare his praise. I'm here to receive and hear his holy word. And I'm here to ask things of him for myself and others. You know, that's, that's the purposes of what I'm here to do. And notice how the dearly beloved on the front end kind of appears in a new form on the back end to remind us in the language of the book of Hebrews, therefore, draw near with me, to the throne of heavenly grace, to the God whose property is always to have mercy. The idea is, in a sense, to kind of woo you to be a little bit more disarmed about being willing to say, Lord, I confess to you my sin. So you could say all that, and the funny thing is, or you could say this at the beginning of the service, let us humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. If you didn't have as much time and didn't want to go through the rigmarole of that whole process, there's another option for you. Let us just, let's get right to it, okay? Silence is kept, all kneeling, which, you know, uh, is so good for the body to be involved um, in this posture. As we were talking about before, for the gospel to be three-dimensional in your life and for these grooves to be worn, it's a useful and wonderful thing that there's, there not be a disjunct between body and the immaterial parts of us. We don't want to be sort of cerebrally working through this. Because a deeper experience of all these gospel truths and these structures are to be found. And I don't know what your experience is like. But sometimes when my heart isn't in it, 
My body leads the way. And the contrition I don't feel in my heart, I sometimes find when I get on my knees, is a little bit more apprehensible. I mean, I'm even feeling it right now. I'm just sort of feeling humbled by the fact that I'm here now and looking you all eye to eye as opposed to above you. So it's amazing what the interplay between body and spirit that nowadays, I mean, there's all sorts of research coming out about how this stuff works in uh, our neurochemistry to affect us and affect our feelings based on how our bodies are receiving certain things. And in a sense, science is catching up to the knowledge that God always had, that these postures matter. So all kneeling, the efficient and people say, just to keep ourselves awake after a sleepy, sleep-inducing lunch, let's all say this together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. I want to point out something to you that's a beautiful observation about this prayer. This prayer is a patchwork of several passages of Scripture. It's a bunch of allusions here. Even the line that tends to get a little sticky for some, there is no health in us, it's just a quote from a psalm. So if you have issue with it, gotta talk to God about that. <laughs> right? But the idea here which is just a, a prayer book axiom, is to get us praying the scriptures before the Lord. Part of what's difficult is, um, if you take your modern translations, sometimes the language isn't as apparent to you. But if you're using the English Bibles that Cranmer was using, some of these allusions would be more obvious how directly tied they are to their various, um, their various counterparts in the scriptures. And it would be worth maybe taking some of these passages and meditating on them sometime to gain a sense of, of the text there. Um, and, you know, since this is a really beautiful confession, and I imagine even you were thinking some things as they were stirring in you, I want to pause and see, do you all have any questions about this particular confession of sin or anything that we've talked about up until this point? Yeah, Abby is saying it's a gift that this happens on the front end of a service because... At least experientially, you know, if you're being called into your boss's office or something like that, and they're just saying a bunch of other things to you, you're kind of wondering, wait, 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 am I getting fired or not kind of thing? I think we need to resolve this before we can move on. And so in a way, there's a joy, and that's how it should be for the Christian. We should be able to boldly enter the throne of grace in confidence because of Christ. So in a sense, it's, 
It's basically God showing us on the front end, there's no other way to approach me but through Jesus. And because you're approaching me through Jesus, you have every confidence, every confidence that you have found a a God of love who is for you in and through Jesus Christ. You are dearly beloved and you can draw near to the throne of grace with great confidence. Other questions? Yes, sir. They're also in a book that you can buy called Worship by Faith Alone. (laughs) Just kidding. Right here, yep. And especially useful will be to look up the Matthew Bible references there from 1537. You'll start to see those, those things come in living color. Aya? Yeah, that, I think that's a great question. It's one of the early questions I had studying. The question is this, why, if I'm emphasizing this theology of kind of reckoning with God early, why in morning and evening prayer is confession and absolution front-ended on the front, but in the Holy Communion liturgy, it's not. Especially, it's a little more apparent in the original prayer books, but I even tried to show you in your own liturgy um, in 2019. I do think that the opening of liturgy there, the opening of the Holy Communion liturgy, is its own form of confession and absolution. So there is a kind of reckoning with the law of God, and there is a a cry for mercy and a giving of mercy of God through the collect and through the word and through various other means like that. So while I'll say you don't have a formal confession and absolution at the front end of Holy Communion, there's a deliberate way of encountering the blazing glory of God and his law through the Ten Commandments is actually that Cranmer only had the Decalogue. He did not have the, the summary of the law, which is an option in our prayer books, and now the Decalogue's an option. But he did have an encounter with the law right on the front end after the collect for purity and then a kind of Lord have mercy upon us, Christ have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us. And then the collect and the word and maybe even in a sense the sermon being the kind of final place of giving Jesus after that big progression of confession. So, yeah. Other questions? Pretty simply, how, you're asking the question, Especially of the three sentences of scripture that begin morning prayer, right here. Of these three. It seems like the latter two are more my words to God. But the reality is, even as they are my words to God, they're still God's word. You know? So God is giving me what to say. And in a sense, he gets the first word, even as the direction of the language is from me to him. He's supplying me with what I say. I'm not inventing and coming out with it myself. So, yes. Yeah, so when Cranmer uh, created options for morning prayer, those scripture sentences weren't calls to worship as much as they were calls to repentance. All his opening scriptures were uh, language from the scriptures of enjoining people to prepare to confess and receive the grace of God. So interestingly, that that shows even more that what he thought we were doing when we woke up in the morning was very much being invited to reckon with God through Jesus Christ, to remember who we are, sinners saved by grace, dearly beloved by God. And so those opening sentences were even more pointed in pointing out that what we're doing in morning prayer is repenting. That's what we're doing here. Make no mistake about it. So yeah, yep, that's right. Other questions? Yes. Well, so 
Um, Nick would just say, it's in the prayer book for the Holy Communion Liturgy that we pray the confession that you do pray. So there aren't necessarily options for those. This is the confession for morning prayer. The one that you pray on Sundays is the one that's prescribed for Holy Communion. So that's, that's ultimately the reason is just that's what was in the prayer book to pray there. Yeah, Nick is saying that there's, a, there's an assumption that if and as you're praying morning and evening prayer, these other confessions are kind of woven into the fabric of your life. And in a sense, when you come on Sunday, you're summarizing and bringing the sum total, that pile of confession and absolution to the table um, in worship as well. Moving on, I want you to observe. There are several options, though there's one confession. There are several options for this, and the next page says, or this. And so there's a longer absolution and a shorter one. This uh, longer one is the one that Cranmer originally prescribed. I'll try to get back there. Come on now. Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love this line. Again, it's trying to reassure you of the kind of God you're approaching. Because here's the deal. Um, This is something that architectural and even some archaeological excavation has revealed to us about medieval churches. Is a very different, uh, this is something that a scholar Eamon Duffy points out in a book called The Stripping of the Altars. He's an expert in medieval Roman Catholicism. And in this book, one of the things he says is your average Christian would walk into their local parish church and see a dominant image at the front of most parish churches across the landscape of Europe. That dominant image was not Christ on a cross. The dominant image was Christ coming in judgment. So think about the formational effect, especially pre-having Bibles, especially this place called the church is the sole sort of location where I'm given content about who God is and what God thinks of me. To walk in to this sacred space and see Christ coming in total judgment. You can imagine that the piety is very much fear-based. You can imagine that everything is sort of centered around shielding oneself, as Duffy said, from Christ's doomsday anger. And that's the nature of piety. So when we hear, Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, desires not the death of a sinner, what he's saying is that there's a, there's a central image that's even more important for you to see daily than Christ coming in judgment, as true as that is. And it is the one who is judged in our place on the cross. So God desires not the death of a sinner, but that they may turn from their wickedness and live. So the view is that turning away from sin is actually turning toward life, not being shackled. He's empowered and commanded his ministers. So here's, it's kind of like a little theology of the priesthood in a way. He's empowered and commanded his ministers that the job of the minister more than anything isn't simply to dispense sacraments, it's to declare Jesus to people. He's empowered and commanded his ministers to pronounce to his people, being repentant or penitent, the absolution and remission of sins. He pardons. That's pretty distinct, actually, because if there's an absolution to take place from a medieval Christian, it would have been in the form of a priest saying, I absolve you. And here, what is being made clear in the liturgy is that God through Christ, is the one who pardons you. He pardons and absolves 
all who truly repent and genuinely believe his holy gospel. And just in case you think that might be a condition, okay, well, have I truly repented? Is he only going to absolve and pardon those who truly repent and believe his gospel? Where do I stand with that? For this reason, we beseech him to grant us true repentance and his Holy Spirit, that our present deeds may please him and that the rest of our lives may be pure and holy and that at the last we may come to his eternal joy through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's being said here is that repentance, which are these grooves that we walk in, even that is a gift. And we need to ask God for it. God, give me the ability to repent. I want to repent and I can't. Help me to repent. And part of the absolution is God will even grant that to you. God will even give that to you. Some other option as well. Notice this rubric right here. It's really similar to what happens right after the sermon when you do what for the creed? You stand. All of a sudden, after having been sort of killed and made alive by this death and resurrection through law and gospel, we all stand and we uh, are given the first words of praise that come out of our mouths. Really, although we've been confessing and stuff, our lips haven't been open until now. O oh Lord, open our lips and our mouths shall proclaim your praise. O oh God, make speed to save us. O oh Lord, make haste to help us. Glory to the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, etc., etc. So the invitation is, get ready, it's time to worship. We've been forgiven. Let's go and praise his glorious name. That's the whole idea. Hang on to this little injunction here. Oh Lord, open our lips. Because there's something that happens on the other side of this as well. We sing together. At this point, it might be good actually to turn your attention as you're looking at this to page 5 in your handout, the structure of morning prayer, to kind of see some of these same cycles of repentance at place as we're going through this. Because we're just sort of rounding out the first cycle of resulting faith. We're invited to pray. And then we offer these praise songs, these worship songs, called the Venite or Venite, which is just the opening Latin word that is part of that psalm, Psalm 95. The Venite and the Jubilate, which is part of that psalm, which is Psalm 100. And so in a sense, we don't start praising until we're standing, resurrected in Jesus. So in the resurrection of Christ, please stand. And then in a sense, we may enter, because we're entering into the, the scripture cycle, another cycle of hearing the word of God read and responding to it with various praises. And just like you experience in your, in your Holy Communion worship where you've got a passage of Scripture and you sing a song, this is the sort of cycle where God speaks and we respond with some sort of song like the Te Deum or Benedictus or one of the others, just a way of doing that. And then as we continue to stand, part of the resulting faith too is saying, I believe, I have faith. You've been resurrected. So this is the result of, of what happens when God, through his word, does yet again another kind of grooving of repentance in our lives and allows us to stand, to praise his name, and then to offer up our faith to him. <clears throat> what we could say here is that we begin in the prayers, the last cycle of repentance. What I think is beautiful about this outline of prayer, though, is that I would describe the way that the prayers work in morning prayer once we hit this point. 
is there's a progression from the outside in or a progression toward deeper intimacy with God. In a sense, we're acknowledging even as we pray, where you're needing your mercy, Lord, to help us to pray. And we begin by praying that quintessential prayer that Jesus gives us that in a sense outlines and helps us to shape the kinds of prayer that we're going to have. After the Lord's Prayer, we enter into what are called the suffrages because in the original English, uh, they would often be prayed as, Suffer, O Lord. <clears throat> we pray it as, oh, come on. Just be gentle. Suffer, O Lord, to show your mercy upon us. Grant us your salvation. All these, by the way, have scriptural references as well. So all these suffrages here are direct quotations of scripture. O Lord, save your people. Bless your inheritance. I want to point out something about uh, these lines right here. I'll actually go on because I want to make my bigger point, which is as these prayers move, we're kind of progressing into... Uh, in a way, entering into that Last Supper room where we sort of land as John the Baptist on Jesus' breast, asking for the things that we need in a really tender way. So again, we've got the Lord's Prayer, and then we have the suffrages. And then the language of the collects just get us a little bit more intimate. They start to sound a little bit more personal, and they draw us in. And there are collects for, in this prayer book, uh, collects for each different day. And sometimes collects that you can employ from the, the church year in various ways. And one addition that I really love about the 2019 is that there's an emphasis on mission daily in daily prayer that hasn't been a part of prayer books before, such that we're always praying these beautiful missionary collects as well, who alone works great marvels, send down upon our clergy and congregations committed to your charge, the life-giving spirit, shower them with continual dew of your blessing, Ignite a zealous love for your gospel. Or God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth. Send your blessed son to preach peace to those who are far off. Or this one that has been in a few prayer books, Lord Jesus Christ. You stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross. That everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. Love that image. So clothe us in your spirit. That we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring forth those. So there's even here a kind of acknowledgement as I come to God's heart. God's going to send me back out to share this love with others. There's a beginning of the verticality of, or the horizontal nature of what this vertical relationship is leading to. And that's kind of uh, some of the more, most intimate prayers until we get to the moment where actually there's white space in the liturgy for us to offer up those things that we need to pray for. If we were praying noonday prayer today, we'd certainly be praying for Israel, right? You may sing a hymn or an anthem here and those sorts of things. And then it's rounded out with this final thing called the general thanksgiving. I love this prayer. It's an acknowledgement that at the end of it, we're still in need of his grace. Almighty God, let's say it together. Almighty God, Father of all mercies. We, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all for your immeasurable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. 
And we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory throughout all ages. Amen. I want you to notice several things about this beautiful prayer. I love this line here about blessing God for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. Daily we're praying something that acknowledges that God and his providence is intimately involved in all the details. He's created me and everything around me, and I bless you for that. Not only that, but there's an instinctual uh, dig against anything that could be deistic about talking to God. Because not only does God create the world, as deists might affirm, but he wasn't some divine watchmaker that, in a sense, winded, wound it up and let it go. Instead, God not only has created it, but preserves it. So he's intimately involved in the ongoing reality of the world, which is why all the science that discovers the way the world works is simply affirming how underneath even that, whether it's gravity or the orbit of the planets, that everything is upheld by the word of Christ's power. So there is an acknowledgement of the cosmic superintendence of God over you in your life. We bless you for creating me, for preserving me. I want to acknowledge that the day I'm going to have, the day I had yesterday, it was only by your preservation and intimate involvement in my life. You know, it's a, it's a safeguard against the feelings that we have sometimes when we feel like God is distant. It's putting prayers on our lips to remind us, just because you feel God is distant doesn't mean he hasn't been around and doesn't mean he hasn't been working. And all the blessings of this life. And as much as those things are praiseworthy, the chief thing I praise you for, the thing I want to recognize is that you love me immeasurably in the redemption of the world by Jesus. And I thank you for the means of grace. This is connecting us to Sunday morning. Because in Sunday morning, we have what our tradition are giving us the particular means of grace in word and sacrament. So that's what we mean. For the things where you display your grace most concretely and wonderfully. The word, the sacraments, prayer, the Bible. Thank you for giving me these things that are constant dispensaries of your grace so that I constantly have your love and grace in my life. So in a sense, every morning prayer is tethered and in reference to Sunday morning. And Sunday morning is tethered and in reference to the all-encompassing prayer of your weekly life. We thank you for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. So again, kind of like that prayer after communion, we have this trajectory that reminds us that we are heirs through hope of thy everlasting kingdom, that we are also people who have the hope of a future glory. I'm created, I'm preserved, and my future is sure. It's an all-encompassing security that the believer has in being able to give thanks that God has reminded me of all these things that are true. And man, don't we need that security on a day-to-day -day basis as we go about our life? I need to remember that God is constantly giving me his grace. I need to remember that my future is sure. It gives me a lot of confidence and stability for this unstable present in the manifold chances and changes of this world, as a colleague says. 
And we pray, give us such, I love this, give us such an awareness of your mercies. This time it's not asking for mercy, it's asking for an awareness of your mercies, which is a little nod to the fact that God is throwing way more mercy at you than you'll ever know. And in a sense, what I, what I don't need is for God to give me more mercy. What I need is the kind of perception to recognize mercy when it's coming at me. And uh, this is something that I took actually from a... Uh, God rest his soul, Chip Stam, who used to teach at Southern Seminary. He had this quip that kind of tweaked me for a while. I thought, this is, that's kind of cheesy. Uh, but then I started thinking about it, and the more I think along these lines of awareness of your mercies, the more I think this is true. Chip Stam used to say, the mature Christian is one who is easily blessed. You know those Christians, right? Always walking around all happy, acting like everything's a blessing. Those kind of people sort of annoy me, Right? But what he was saying is similar to what this is encouraging us to believe, is that the mature Christian is one who has the eyes to see that all of life is a gift of God. That everywhere I go, God is around, superintending with his grace and mercy. And so to be easily blessed is someone whose perception of God's mercies is wide open. I'm expecting, God, that you're going to be merciful to me today, and I'm looking for it. And those happy people, I now, now that I'm an older Christian, wish I could be more like. And so when I pray, give me such an awareness of your mercies, I'm praying, God, make me more easily blessed. Make me someone who perceives even the hard stuff that I'm tempted to complain about. Make me the kind of person that actually is able to see your hand and praise you for those things. Man, that's, that's the hardest prayer to pray. That with truly thankful hearts, we may show forth your praise. Did you catch it? Not only with our lips. So remember at the beginning when we were absolved and we first rose up in the resurrection and we said, Oh Lord, open our lips. And here now we're extending. I don't just want to praise you with my lips anymore like I've been doing. I want to praise you with my whole life. So there's a kind of movement of the resurrected being through morning prayer that is not only offering God, especially as we leave the prayer book and the worship service and go out into the world and vocation that God's called us to. I don't just want to praise you with my lips. I want, and here's the offertory where you're laying on the plate again. I want my whole life to be sacrificed to you, not only with our lips, but in our lives by giving up ourselves. I'm on the offering plate to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What questions do you all have? There's a, a final prayer here that's beautiful and been a part of liturgies uh, and is, was a part of even Eastern liturgies that Cranmer employed and gave to Western worship that is, has been a big part called the prayer of, of St. Chrysostom. And then a final kind of benediction and blessing along with a few other things. But questions? Yes. Yeah, we do. Part of the, you're talking about in Holy Communion? Yep. Um, there's a theological reason why that word came up twice, uh, and it is because it's a kind of justification filter gospel word and was a point of contention between Protestant uh, understanding of the gospel and what's happening in communion and a Roman Catholic one. And what Cranmer wanted to make clear in that prayer in Holy Communion, when he talked about, not only does he repeat the word oblation, he repeats the word one. Uh, Christ who made there, on the cross, not here at the table, who made there by his one oblation once offered, 
A perfect oblation and sacrifice, right? Why, I mean, yeah, there might be a better word that we could use to translate it. It's sort of offering. But loaded in that language, at least in the 16th century, was those are things that we did for God. And what Cranmer is doing is doubly emphasizing that if there are any oblations offered, it is what Christ did on behalf of us on the cross. And no more oblations are needed. So it's sort of doubly emphasizing what in practice would have been something that worshipers perceived as we bring to the table in worship. He's giving back to the Lord and saying this is what the Lord has done. So a hot button issue he wants to sort of doubly press as the work of Christ, not us. Yeah. Yes, there was a disparity. The question is, at the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, how often were people receiving uh, the Eucharist and um, how often did Cranmer want to it, want it to happen? Based on the 1552 Book of Common Prayer, Cranmer was envisioning Eucharist being a weekly thing. So it appears. Prior to that, the Eucharist was celebrated rather infrequently, often quarterly and often not in both kinds, which means that typically um, people would not receive both bread and wine. And uh, most of the time they were simply watching the priest do that for them and that their job was to, to uh, watch it happen. So, yes. Because especially in that era, there was major confusion over where the... Uh, sorry, the, the question he asks is, why is there in absolutions a shying away from the priest saying, I forgive you, rather than uh, it using the language of God forgives you? Especially in that era, there was a lot of confusion of who is the true mediator between God and humanity. And a lot of personal piety of your average Christian thought that the priest was the key holder and had the ability to, uh, had the power to forgive you in themselves because of apostolic succession or the laying on of hands and had unique power that was unavailable anywhere else. And what the readers of scripture in the 16th century who came up with these liturgies wanted to make clear was that Christ alone has that power. He does use human mediators, which is why I don't think it's necessarily wrong for someone to be able to offer here. Hear these words is from God. I forgive you, you know? And in a sense, that's what using the, these beautiful powers of the keys are. Um, they were interested in that not being something that gave any sense that the priests sort of possessed something unique that they could withhold or, or give, and it, and it wasn't a, a truly kind of freely accessed thing of, uh, of or from Jesus. So there was a sensitivity to that especially in the Reformation era when the office of the priest was very much confused with, oh, this is where I go to get forgiveness from you. So. Yes, right. The, the question is if, if we, especially as families, which you're probably implying like kids and adults are trying to do this together, how do we keep it from feeling routine and staying fresh? And I do think that that's where uh, especially music comes into play. And being able to sing songs together that rotate in and out. There will be a bit of uh, freedom felt in the different scripture re readings led. And if there's time, I might even say, in the midst of the scripture readings, ask what you're hearing from the Lord as those scriptures are read. Um, 
especially as you do it as a family, I think that you should feel the freedom of the flexibility. One thing that I do love about the 2019 Book of Common Prayer is that it does give family services in, in the prayer book itself too. The other thing I'd say is in addition to all the ways that that could be fresh, and maybe some of the freshness can be assigning who leads what part of the liturgy as well uh, to keep that fresh. But one of the other things that I find um, worth just reminding is that even when things are routine, because of the, the nature of how human beings, and there's now scientific evidence to back this, going through the motions isn't totally not valuable. What I mean is sometimes if all you can do is show up to worship and blankly work through that, that there's formative power in that because you're simply reinforcing certain things that may at other times come back at you. And ritual theorists, some people who aren't even Christians, acknowledge that cultures just instinctively create repetitive ritual for the sake of reinforcing their most important values in our lives. And so I wouldn't discount, even if the repetition becomes bland. And that's what I, you know, the kid for worship, he says, why do I have to come to say the same prayers? The simple answer is because someday you'll really need it. Because someday you'll really need that groove. And we're, we're, we're playing the long game with you. So that down the road, you're going to find, and you may rebel and react against this, but somewhere along the line, this is going to be so deeply embedded and implanted in the, in, in the grooves of your heart that you're going to be haunted by the Holy Spirit. And you're going to find that where can I go from your spirit? If I try to go on the far side of the sea, you're there. If I escape to the bed of Sheol, you're there. You know? And some of that is done through the ritual to the praise and glory of God. Yes. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think he's asking the question, is there any sense in which Cranmer, based on what you read of his liturgies, understands worship as a form of covenant renewal that might link us to the way that worship worked in the Old Testament or in general other, other um, traditions of Christianity, such, like as, such as the Reformed tradition, which will emphasize a lot more how uh, worship is a covenant renewal ceremony. I guess I have to answer a little bit more. Uh, I'm not sure about Cranmer, but I will say theologically, my appraisal is when you're engaging in this stuff, you are engaging in a covenant renewal ceremony. You are renewing God's covenant with us because you're renewing faith in Christ, who is the, the chief end of the covenant, the, uh, the, ultimate, um, the ultimate revelation of the covenants of the Old Testament and the flowering of the New Covenant. Yes. 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 In the original prayer book, it's not an option. You can see why some wanted to make it an option or say, you know, it may be omitted except during Lent. In other words, this is a really sad part of Psalm 95. And let's say it when we're sad. And we're sad during Lent. So say it then. Uh, in Cranmer, there was no division. He's just, we're praying Psalm 95. We're letting it speak as a whole. And yeah, it's sort of abrupt, right? Come, let's praise the Lord. We love the Lord. And by the way, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart like Israel did at Meribah and Massa when they denied me and they gave into temptation, right? There's an, it's a really interesting sort of experience of praying a psalm like that. But yes, it was full and not chopped up in the original prayer book. Yes, yes. The Gloria Patri is often used in and around scripture readings, 
especially because in early liturgies, uh, glory be to the Father. The question is, can I explain the significance of what's called the Gloria Patria? Glory be to the Father and to the Son, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Interestingly enough, we found this in use in a lot of the earliest liturgies, in between the Old Testament and New Testament readings, precisely for the statement of, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever, in the sense of all the scriptures are a revelation of Jesus Christ. So as we bridge the Old Testament and New Testament, we don't believe that they're saying different things. We believe that they're declaring Christ from first to last. They're expositing the triune God. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. Salvation from first to last has always been through Jesus Christ. Because the earliest Christians were wrestling through as the canon was being um, observed and codified amongst Christians about the nature of the connection between the Hebrew scriptures and the scriptures that emerged in the first century. And part of what we enacted liturgically was a conviction and a confession that these are all one declaration and not two religions. That, in fact, the Old Testament um, is that. And it's also just simply a kind of exclamation of what happens when the word works, which is we encounter the glory of God. And it's worth praising God whenever his word is read because we haven't been left to our own devices and desires, but have been given a definitive revelation of Jesus Christ. Thank God for that. So that's, that's where the Gloria Patri kind of came from. And it's pretty old, too. It's something like the 4th, 5th century. You start to see... These Gloria Patris sort of cropping up in liturgies and being connected with the scripture readings of Old and New Testaments. Probably, he's asking the question of if it was appended between lessons, why in our prayer book is at the end? Because somewhere along the line, it was sort of moved down to that location. It still functions the same way. What it is is a kind of a wrap-up observation. All this stuff is revealing Christ from first to last. Yeah, that's what I'd say. I don't know if there's any other deeper meaning than that. Yes, sir. Is that last question? <laughs> if the ultimate message you're asking, if you heard the message, do more and try harder, and would I say that's the gospel? No, I would not. I hope that you wouldn't either, because that's not good news. It might be a wonderful admonition. I say it to my kids all the time. I say it internally to myself, especially when I'm at the gym and I'm trying to get a new PR or something like that. But I certainly uh, don't, it doesn't strike me as good news. Yeah, do better. Yep, be better. But you're right. It, it, it can sometimes be that the way Christianity sounds in a lot of places is that's what it's about, is being better. And there's a distinctively different message that the word of the cross gives. Um, that is the gift of Christ himself. And it's the unique thing about Christianity as opposed to any other form of religion. All other religions have some form of personal betterment. This is the only one where God takes on flesh and does for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. That's a great place to end. <laughs>